Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. Again, starting a series of Christmas-themed messages And uh, I know I really don't need to defend that to you. But let me just say a couple things, because this is a short message. I've got time uh, to share a couple things about this. And I'm not an expert, uh, but most of you know the general contours of how Christmas came to be. And it's one of those things that when people, and, and I don't run into it very often, um, I very rarely run into it in person, but you see stuff online. Uh, people who are believers, but who say there is nothing in the Bible about Christmas. Uh, and then they launch right into the whole pagan roots of the whole thing. Why do we even do this? We're not encouraged. We don't see it in the early church. We don't see any, uh, any evidence that this is something we're supposed to do. Um, and uh, as far as the pagan roots... That's all about the date. You know, people say, well, he, Jesus wasn't born on, on uh, December 25th. We really don't know when he was born. Uh, and we don't. We don't know when he was born. There are some clues, and there's some great, uh, great theories about why it absolutely could have been on December 25th, or at least around that time, but I'm not going to go into any of those now. The bottom line is, uh, it, it's widely understood, and I agree with this, that the date has more to do with the celebration of the the solstice, the winter solstice. This was a celebration in many pagan cultures, celebrating that uh, on the, the shortest day of the year, after that, the sun returns, the days get longer, uh, warmth returns, uh, it's time for uh, you know, the, the fertile soil to yield up its fruit again and celebrate the return of uh, warmer times. And so, you know, there's, you know, whether it's sun worship or just earth worship, there was a lot of celebration going around the winter solstice. And as, uh, uh, when, when Christianity became legitimized, when it became legal, um, these, uh, when it became official, church officials looked for ways to either stamp out evidence of paganism or, in this case, well, we'll find a way to let you keep your pagan celebrations, but we'll Christianize them. We don't want to take this huge celebration away from you, uh, but instead of uh, uh, the solstice, what we're going to celebrate is the birth of Christ. And they, well, we can't, you can't just take something that's so utterly pagan and then slap a Christian name on it. I understand there's some difficulty there. Here's what I like about it. Here's what I love about it. It's because the birth of Christ really did happen. Okay? Now, they tried the same thing with Halloween. I'm not a big fan of Halloween. I don't, I don't preach, hey, it's Halloween, so let's do a message on demons. I really just ignore Halloween when it rolls around from a church standpoint, but I also don't stand up here and rail against it. Ah, you're going to get uh, demon-possessed if, if you have a jack-o'-lantern on your porch. I'm not, I'm not an activist, okay? Uh, I wrote an essay about this years ago. I usually make it available. I forgot to say anything about it this year on Halloween. If you want it, I'll send you a copy. It's no big deal, but... The, the festival, the Soen thing, this, this very, very pagan festival that was taking place, they tried to Christianize that too. 
And so they said, well, we'll have this, we'll have this All Saints Day. And, I, and I'm giving you a very, very layman's view of this because that's what I am when it comes to this. I'm not an expert on these things, but this is pretty accurate. We'll have All Saints Day, and we'll have All Saints Eve, All Hallows Eve, and so we'll try to Christianize this. Well, what's All Saints Day where they recognize all these dead saints and even pray to these dead saints? Uh, there's nothing biblically at the root of this. Never mind the date, never mind trying to Christianize something pagan. What they tried to do was had no more to recommend it biblically than so in itself. So in the name of the, it's spelled Samhain. When you see it, it looks like Samhain, but it's pronounced so in. Uh, there was nothing biblical or Christian about what they replaced it with other than to call it All Saints Day. It was, it was built on nothing. Uh, but, but Christmas, the birth of Christ, is something that really did happen. And one of the other complaints is, yeah, okay, it happened, but the birth was never meant to be that big a deal. It was all about the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension. But that's not true either. They celebrated the birth of Christ, that first birth anyway. Now, maybe we don't have a record of the early church celebrating it regularly after that, but I think this was a good move by the church or the churches or the Christian powers to say this is a date worth celebrating. This is an event worth celebrating. And over the years, and it took centuries for Christmas to actually become a big deal as Christmas, but I think it's one of the triumphs of Christianized culture to absolutely take a, something that was pagan and absolutely Christianize it, to turn it into a Christ-centered holiday. And then what happens over the, over the you know, it kind of goes like this, you know, it comes around, uh, now it's a Christian holiday, and then it becomes paganized again. So now Christmas becomes all about trees and snow and jingle bells and toys and Satan Claus, I'm sorry, Santa Claus. Uh, to where he becomes the hero of the story, and Jesus at best takes a back seat. And, uh, then, and then you've got good Christians who complain about the crass commercialization of the holiday, and then you've got uh, the politically active uh, people saying, well, you, can't, you shouldn't even say Merry Christmas. You shouldn't have public displays like uh, manger scenes and so forth, nativity scenes. Uh, and you should say happy holidays as if this is just the absolute knife point of the culture wars. How dare they say happy holidays when we know it's Christmas. I laugh and I smile when I hear that because I just, I'm like, what? Come on. You can call it anything. You can call it the holiday season, the festive season, the season of giving, the season of light, the season of love. But we all know what the holiday is, don't we? It's Christmas. It's kind of like this, uh, most of us still use this, but you know, officially now you're supposed to say, refer to years and time, times as uh, uh, BCE and CE, before common era and common era, or current era. But you know what it used to be, what it really still is, BC and AD, before Christ and in the year of our Lord. 
Okay, and we think, how could they take that away? They haven't. They've relabeled it. All right, what's the dividing line between the common era and before common era? The birth of Christ. It's still at the core of it. So, I do a little eye roll at the culture war aspect of this. But uh, I just wanted to say that, that, that I'm a big believer in celebrating Christmas. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, again for the next few weeks. And I'm going to get into some meteor stuff, scripturally meteor. Meteor as in carne, not, not meteor as in shooting star. Meteor stuff scripturally in the next couple of weeks. Today's a little bit more uh, lighthearted, although there's some heavy stuff here. I just want to get, let me, let's start this. It's just kind of been stirring in me this week, and you'll know why in a minute. I said during the communion meditation, this, the, that where I always start, where my mind always goes, is this sense of anticipation, longing for the Messiah. The Hebrews understood, the Jews understood that the suffering they were enduring uh, at many points down through history was due to their sin uh, and God's judgment. And this suffering and judgment took the form of being conquered, and then, of conquered by and then serving other nations, one nation after another, but that someday Messiah would come and set things right. Now here's the picture. This is the situation I want you to remember. God had a plan for the salvation of mankind from the beginning, even before the beginning. We can talk about the doctrine of superlapsarianism sometime if you want, but that's the idea that God's plan for salvation was in place before the fall, which we believe, I believe, but for our purposes, it's sufficient that God uttered his intentions in the garden when he said to the serpent uh, regarding the seed of woman that he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This was in Genesis. Right after the fall, God was talking about the crucifixion, the victory at the cross. Now, the whole rest of the Old Testament is the outworking of God's plan to bring the Messiah to the world. And the hunger of his people, Israel, their desire for the Messiah was due to two things. Prophecy that over the years firmed up and clarified God's plan for bringing Messiah and their own miserable circumstances. The unhappier they got, uh, the more they longed for Messiah. Now, by the time Jesus arrived, Israel had been essentially scattered to the point, I mean the northern kingdom of Israel, scattered to the point where they were not even a people, hadn't been for hundreds of years. And Judah was a dim shadow of its former glory, taken into captivity by Babylon, then living as slaves or second-class citizens in the Medo-Persian Empire, and then under Greece, and then under Rome. Centuries of this. And people did what people do when they can't see a natural solution to their problems. They turned to God. They turned to Scripture. And some of them did the math and realized that now was about the time 
for Messiah to appear. Here's the thing, though. When God had used deliverers in the past, I mean, think of the judges that he raised up during the period of the judges. Think of uh, some of the prophets, the action prophets like Elijah and Elisha. We meet them full-grown, ready for action, ready for their call. In other words, they show up on the scene when it's time to do what God is calling them to do. We don't get their life stories for the most part. And whatever form the Messiah was going to take, an angel, a man, a resurrected prophet, whoever he was, I think most expected him to burst on the scene more or less out of nowhere and get down to business. Again, I think the zealots thought they were on to something. Let's start, let's get this going. We'll show God we're serious about casting off Roman rule and returning to him, and he will raise the Messiah up right out of our midst. And you and I know the rest of the story. They wanted the Messiah to get down to business, but the business that Jesus was about was what? It was dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending to heaven. That was the salvation that Judah needed. That was the salvation that the world needed. And that's the Easter message. That's the center of our faith. That's the good news, right? Last Wednesday, I think it was last Wednesday, was December 7th. Anybody remember the significance of that date in history? December 7th, 1941, what happened? Pearl Harbor. I've been uh, reading, as it turns out, some things about Pearl Harbor and more generally about the months leading up to America's involvement in World War II. And a lot happened beforehand, but Hitler had invaded Poland over two years before Pearl Harbor. You remember that? France was overrun in practically no time. England was in it up to her neck very early on in this struggle. Meanwhile, Japan was running amok in the east, sinking ships, taking over fortresses and cities that were considered impregnable, places like Singapore. Russia fighting for her life as the Germans advanced a thousand miles into the motherland, was screaming for a second front so that they could hold out. And during those two years between the invasion of Poland and Pearl Harbor, during at least those two years, the whole free world was asking, when is the United States going to get in this war? We have a movie's eye view of this thing now, where finally America had had enough and, and uh, Pearl Harbor was the straw that broke the camel's back. We just, you know, you, you could go on for, there are, there's been rivers of ink, oceans of ink spilled about whether America was right to wait that long or should we have gotten in two years earlier. Um, you understand we were just coming out of a depression. Uh, our industrial machinery was cranking up, but it was cranking out automobiles and refrigerators and things that made life easy and pleasant. Remember, we were barely 20 years past World War I at this point. The war to end, imagine the war to end all wars had taken place in the year 2000. And now it's 2022. Are we ready for another world war? The older you are, the more you, the more you appreciate just how short a time that is. 
Nobody wanted to do this again. Well, England and France were, and, and Russia were doing it again. They didn't have much choice because Germany was moving against them. And now Japan. But, and there's all these political considerations. You know, uh, th there were so many people. This wasn't a nation of, we've got to go help Europe. We've got to help the Jews. We've got to help these people. It was just like, yeah, this is, life is pretty sweet here. There was a strong anti-war sentiment. And this is what scared the rest of the world. They were looking at America as this great hope. What was also interesting is America was not militarily in a position to do a great deal of war making. Personnel-wise, we had next to nothing. Equipment-wise, we had next to nothing. And when the industry finally began to move slowly toward a war footing, all of the planes and tanks and, and uh, uh, weaponry were being sent to mostly to Great Britain and Russia on Lend-Lease just to keep them afloat, just to keep them in the fight. It wasn't like we had this enormous war machine that all we needed to do was flip a switch and unleash uh, our fury on the world. It would be two years before we were an effective military. But on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese Imperial Navy attacked the United States Naval Base at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. And the next day, the United States declared war on Japan. And three days later, declared war on Germany. Why am I telling you this? Do you remember on September 11th, 2001, seeing these disturbing images of people celebrating when those planes crashed into the Twin Towers? That was ugly. I want you to know that when news of Pearl Harbor hit the world, Many, many people who were struggling against the Nazis and against the Japanese literally cheered. They cried tears of joy. Churchill himself wrote of the joy that he felt and the immense relief. But this wasn't the same thing. They weren't cheering the Japanese. They weren't celebrating our tragedy. They simply knew that it meant one thing, that the United States was now in this thing. And they knew, they didn't hope, they knew before war was declared, they knew that this thing was as good as over. And I'm not exaggerating. People cheered, yes, now America is in this and now we have won. Before a declaration of war, before we could field an effective army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and none of these things were ready to go. And yet everybody knew instinctively that all we had to do was say, that's it. We're in. And the whole worldview of the world changed. Once the United States made its will and its intentions known, the enemy trembled. And the free world rejoiced. 
How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia? I know my sister Lori loves that. No, I'm kidding. I'm just... How many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia? At least The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? C.S. Lewis. It's been a while for me. I need to revisit it. But in Narnia, they were living under a spell, a curse. Rule, uh, they were ruled by the White Witch. And the curse was this. It's always winter, but never Christmas. And the good Narnians live undercover, living for the day that the curse will be lifted when the powerful lion, the true ruler of Narnia, would return and set things right. But he hasn't been seen for years. And then one day, word starts to spread that brings a jolt of energy, excitement, and celebrations in Narnia. What is that word? What's the rumor? Is it that the white witch has been defeated? Has Aslan captured or killed her? What is the word? The temperature starting to rise in Narnia? The curse has been lifted? No, the word is this. Aslan has landed. Aslan has landed. Nothing else had changed. He hadn't done what he came to do. That was a foregone conclusion. He was here. It was over. Aslan is on the move. Luke chapter 2. Beginning in verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. This is what Christmas sounds like to me. The work wasn't done yet. Jesus still had to grow up he still had to live a sinless life. He still had to do his ministry, his earthly ministry. And of course, he still had to face the agony of the cross, rise from the dead and ascend to heaven before the Holy Ghost would come and effect the change that literally makes us new creatures, free from sin and the curse. But the angels knew at that moment that it was over. Oh, there's a lot that still has to happen, but he's here. And that's enough to celebrate. The mission hasn't been accomplished yet, at least in space and time, but he is here. Simeon and Anna knew it. This is a passage that Pastor Bob Yandian shared with us in a different context a couple weeks ago, but let me read it again in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was just and devout, 
waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had, listened to this, seen the Lord's salvation, seen the Lord's Christ. So he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought the child, Jesus, to him, to, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign which will be spoken against. Yes, a sword will pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Now there was one, Anna, a prophetess, daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher, she was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Now I know we live on the other side of all this. And we can celebrate the victory of the cross and the resurrection as a historical event already taken place. But the very fact that his arrival as a baby caused such celebration and gratitude among men and angels back then is enough for me to continue to celebrate it today. Simeon, overwhelmed with joy, holding baby Jesus, said, I'm ready to go now. If I die now, I've seen everything I need to see. And what did he see? Oh, I see the future. I see the possibilities. I see this baby. No, I've seen your salvation. What? That was 33 years in the future. Or was it? He is here. The very fact that he is here means it's done. It's over, but it's not over. We are still awaiting the complete redemption, for instance, of our bodies. Healing. Provision, protection, all of these are just tastes. They're shadows. They're down, payment, down payments on what God has ultimately promised us, which is glorified bodies, eternal bodies that are fit for our eternal spirits. You've talked about this before. We have been freed because of the finished work of Christ from the punishment of sin. And because of the power of his resurrection and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we've been freed from the power of sin. But we still await our ultimate redemption, freedom from the presence of sin. 
bodies that aren't stained and that, and that struggle. We can't even imagine, because of our flesh, we can't even imagine living in a state where sin no longer tempts us. But we're going to have flesh one day, glorified flesh that longs only for the things that God designed us for. And why do I believe, truly believe this day is coming? Because he has kept every other promise he made. When he said he was giving a savior to the world, when he said he was giving a Messiah to his people, he fulfilled that. Jesus came. Jesus was born on earth in space and time in history. And his very coming began the, the fulfillment of God's greatest promise. The faith lesson there is just as Simeon said he had seen God's salvation even though the cross hadn't happened yet. When we say just his, just, just America's saying they're involved in the war meant the war was over. Just as uh, Jesus' coming meant that he was, that the work was done. Same way when God says something, when we read it in his word, the very fact that he says it means it's done, means we can believe it. We don't have to wait and see what happens after God says it. We say, ah, this is what he said. This is what I'm counting on. This is done. As good mission is as good as accomplished. And there's one final word of warning I have for you. I don't want to end on a downer, but we spoke for several weeks about how we should be living uh, the you know the unassembled Christian life. How do we live between services? Do you remember this phrase from Second Timothy, uh, chapter four, verse eight? Paul wrote, "Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous Judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only." but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Praise the worship team. You can come back up here. Crown of righteousness, which he's laid up for me and all those who've loved his appearing. The incarnation, the first appearance of Jesus in the flesh on the earth, was cause for great celebration. An angel, and then the angels, proclaiming glory to God in the highest. This is good news. What's the good news? The good news of the gospel is that he has already borne our sin. He's carried our sin away from us. He's made salvation available. And yet this announcement, the very fact that he was born, was good news. Great tidings toward men of goodwill, right? Still is good news. But it wasn't good news for the demons. It wasn't good news for the devil. You know, uh, once America got into the war... Uh, you can't, I mean, there were, there were still some, some defeats on the horizon, but you can also look and, and see the enemy making some panicky mistakes, at not just tactical, but I'm talking at the strategic level, moving whole armies different directions, trying to 
uh, salvage something from history. And you can see the demons doing this when Jesus showed up. Before the cross, before he, before he did what he came to do, you know, he'd get out of a boat, and here would be a demon-possessed man come at him screaming, Ah, have you come to torment us before the time, thou son of David? Just his presence throws the enemy into a panic. And our presence should do that, shouldn't it? But we don't want to be on the extreme other end of this either. I'm not talking about being demon-possessed. I'm talking about if Jesus, if the skies were to split wide tonight and he appears to the world, what's your reaction going to be? Are you going to love his appearing or you're going to say, not yet. My life isn't right. I'm not ready. We've talked about this many times. I hope it doesn't sound like I'm beating a dead horse. The one reason you might want to wait one more day, the best reason, the, the, maybe the only legitimate reason I can think is I want one more day to preach to one more person. I want to share. I want to see one more person come to Christ. I want one more week. I want one more year to bring in the harvest. This is, this is the heart of God. This is what Peter writes. You know, you, there's some people, he said, I know you want Jesus to come back right now. I don't want you to think that he's being slack concerning his promise. What you're seeing is slackness. What you're seeing as this torturous weight, you need to see that this is God not willing that any should perish. He's stretching this thing out to include as many salvations as possible. If your desire not to see Jesus today is for any other reason, you need to examine your life. It's either because you're too in love with the world or it's because you're not living the way you should and you're not ready to face him. I'm not talking just in terms of salvation. Stand up with me, by the way. You've been, I know it's not been a super long time, but you have been sitting a little while. There are two aspects to that. One is, if you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, then yeah, you're not, you're not going to love his appearing. That's going to be a terrible day because it's too late at that point. There really is a heaven and a hell. We're destined to spend eternity with the God who created and loves us or eternally separated from him. We need to get that right first. Well, how do I know what my destiny is? He said, we're destined for one or the other. It's up to you. You're going to talk, I think, next week about whether your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And your homework, and you might prove me wrong, but I don't think you will. I want you to find me the verse in the Bible that says where he wrote your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay? But we're going to talk about that, whose name is in the book of life. But meanwhile, you need to know that it says those whose names are not found in the book of life, they're removed from the presence of God for eternity. How do you know if your name's in there? That's up to you right now. You know if it is. If you made Jesus Christ your Lord, if you've been born again, if you've confessed Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's there. If you haven't, you have an opportunity to now. What you don't want to be on that day particularly 
is, have you come face to face with the truth of the gospel and rejected it? Don't wait another Christmas. Don't wait another day to receive the gift that God gave the world. If you have not made Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, then you have not received the gift of salvation. And I invite you to do both today. Heavenly Father, you alone can see the heart of every individual in this room and you know what our needs are. You know where, you know where we stand in relationship to salvation. I ask you to do what only you can do and that's to speak to every heart by your Holy Spirit and cause every one of us to know where we stand. Cause every one of us to know what you know about us. Do we need to make a decision today, Lord God, and give us the strength Give us the courage, give us the wisdom, give us the humility to make that decision. If there's anyone in the sound of my voice who has not made a decision for you, Lord God, convince them as only you can that today is their day to receive that gift of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd like to make that decision today, this will be your best Christmas ever. Until next Christmas. And that'll be the best Christmas ever. And they just get better and better and better. We just celebrate. It's this. I get more excited about it every year. Every year we're one year closer. Celebrating the, the incarnation, the coming of Christ is a great, and remembering that is such a great way to prepare our hearts for the return of Christ. Amen. So we're going to sing a song. As soon as we start singing, if you'd like me to pray with you that prayer of salvation, come up here. and Just be bold. Don't be shy about it. I'm not going to do the slip your hand up thing. This is the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. You need to make it boldly and let us celebrate that decision with you. Amen? Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.